Welcome to the Westminster Pulpit, an extension of the worship ministry at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format, and may this sermon nurture your life in a meaningful way as we proclaim our Savior. We now join Associate Pastor Reverend Dave Kiefer. We've been walking through the the book of Numbers, and if you want to follow along when I read a little bit later on, uh, we have Bibles in the pew, and you can follow along on page 119. And it's been a couple weeks in our journey through the the book of Numbers. And just to briefly review, in in chapter 1, the book opens with a census of all the tribes of Israel while they're still at, at Mount Sinai in the wilderness, and so thus the book's name after the census. And in chapters 2 through 4, God gives directions about how the tribes of Israel are to be arranged as a community in camp, and the order they were to break camp when traveling through the wilderness with Judah taking the lead. And when camping, God's tent, the tabernacle, was to be at the center, indicating God's rightful place in the community. And the tribes were arranged with three on the east and three on the west and three on the south and three on the north with the priests and the Levites forming a circle around the tabernacle, taking up a position between God and the people, and stewarding God's house with the responsibility typical of a firstborn. Uh, This all illustrated not just that God was with his people, that he was Emmanuel, God with his people, but how they were to live with God, that God was to be central to their identity and their focal point, uh, the focal point of their existence as a community. In chapters 5 through 8, there are various laws about ritual purity that are given, uh, that are in the same vein as those already given in the book of Leviticus. And it's to remind the people that if God is to live among them, the people must live holy lives and maintain purity. And then in chapter 9, details how they're to celebrate the Passover year after year. And in chapter 10... Then we see God's glory cloud lift from the tabernacle as God begins to lead his people through the wilderness. So that's where we've been, and that brings us to chapter 11, where they are uh, journeying through the wilderness, and it doesn't take Israel very long before they start to complain about the journey. And so as we go through this passage, you're going to see that the passage falls basically into two parts, two sections, the first dealing with the the nature of Israel's complaints, and the second dealing with the nature of God's response to their complaints. So let me pray, and then I'll read the passage, and we'll walk through it. God, thanks so much for your word, and we recognize that even though this story happened a long time ago, it is so relevant to us and our day. Lord, we also feel like we are at times and seasons of life walking through a desert wilderness. And we are very tempted to complain when things don't go our way. We are confused. We often uh, really don't trust you. And so, Father, we pray that as we, we read this story that you would, you would reveal our own hearts to us, but more importantly, you would reveal your heart and how in knowing you, we can trust you. Um, Father, we pray that you would do a deep and good work among us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, Numbers chapter 11, starting at verse 1. 
And the people complained in the hearing of the Lord about their misfortunes. And when the Lord heard it, his anger was kindled, and the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some outlying parts of the camp. And then the people cried out to Moses, and Moses prayed to the Lord, and the fire died down. And so the name of that place was called Taborah, meaning burning, because the fire of the Lord burned among them. Now the rabble that was among them had a strong craving. And the people of Israel also wept again and said, Oh, that we had meat to eat. We remember the fish that we ate in Egypt that cost us nothing. The cucumbers and melons, the leeks, the onions and the garlic. But now our strength is dried up and there is nothing at all but this manna to look at. Now the manna was like coriander seed and its appearance like that of belm. The people went about and gathered it and ground it in handmills and beat it in mortars and boiled it in pots and made cakes of it. And the taste of it was like the taste of cakes baked with oil. And when the dew fell upon the camp in the night, the manna fell with it. And Moses heard the people weeping throughout their clans, everyone at the door of his tent. And the anger of the Lord blazed hotly, and Moses was displeased. Moses said to the Lord, Why have you dealt ill with your servant? And why have I not found favor in your sight that you lay the burden of all this people on me? Did I conceive all this people? Did I give them birth that you should say to me, Carry them in your bosom as a nurse carries a nursing child to the land that you swore to give their fathers? Where am I to get meat to give to all this people? For they weep before me and say, Give us meat that we may eat. I'm not able to carry all this people alone. The burden is too heavy for me. If you will treat me like this, kill me at once. If I find favor in your sight that I may not see my wretchedness. Then the Lord said to Moses, Gather for me 70 men of the elders of Israel, whom you know to be elders of the people and officers over them, and bring them to the tent of meeting and let them take their stand there with you. And I will come down and talk with you there. And I will take some of the spirit that is on you and put it on them, and they shall bear the burden of the people with you so that you may not bear it yourself alone." And say to the people, consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow you shall eat meat. For you have wept in the hearing of the Lord, saying, who will give us meat to eat? For it was better for us to be in Egypt. And therefore the Lord will give you meat, and you shall eat. You shall not eat just one day, or two days, or five days, or ten days, or twenty days, but a whole month until it comes out of your nostrils and becomes loathsome to you, because... You have rejected the Lord who is among you and have wept before him saying, why did we come out of Egypt? But Moses said, the people among whom I number are 600,000 on foot and you have said, I will give them meat that they may eat a whole month. Shall flocks and herds be slaughtered for them and, and be enough for them? Or shall all the fish of the sea be gathered together for them and be enough for them? And the Lord said to Moses, Is the Lord's hand shortened? Now you shall see whether my word will come true for you or not. 
So Moses went out and told the people the words of the Lord. And he gathered 70 men of the elders of the people and placed them around the tent. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and spoke to him and took some of the spirit that was on him and put it on the 70 elders. And as soon as the spirit rested on them, they prophesied, but they did not continue doing it. Now two men remained in the camp, one named Eldad and the other named Medad. And the spirit rested on them. And they were among those registered, but they had not gone out to the tent. And so they prophesied in the camp. And a young man ran and told Moses, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the assistant of Moses from his youth said, my Lord, Moses, stop them. But Moses said to him, are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put his spirit on them? And Moses and the elders of Israel returned to camp. Then a wind from the Lord sprang up, and it brought quail from the sea and let them fall beside the camp, about a day's journey on this side and a day's journey on the other side around the camp, and about two cubits above the ground. And the people rose all that day and all night and all the next day and gathered the quail. And those who gathered least gathered ten homers. And they spread them out for themselves all around the camp. And while the meat was yet between their teeth, before it was consumed, the anger of the Lord was kindled against the people. And the Lord struck down the people with a very strong, great plague. Therefore, the name of that place was called Kibriath Hatava, because there they buried the people who had the craving. From Kibriath Hatava, the people journeyed to Hazaroth, and they remained in Hazaroth. So first of all, what's the nature of Israel's complaint? A couple things. First, what we see is their complaint was not hidden from God. They may have thought that they were safely whispering behind God's back, but look at verse 1 of chapter 11. They complained in the hearing of the Lord. In other words, God was well aware of their grumbling. They would have been foolish to think that they could safely whisper outside of divine earshot. No, God heard every word. He always hears every word. He still hears every word. So their grumbling was quite obvious. Second, their grumbling mood was rooted in unbelief. How so? Notice how their unbelief drives them to rewrite the narrative, both the past narrative and the present narrative. They rewrite history in verse 5. We remember the free fish we ate in Egypt and the fresh veggies, the cucumbers and the melons and the leeks, the onions and the garlic. See, when a grumbling mood takes hold of a person, it turns their memories upside down. If, if, lead, if Egypt was as good as they say, then why did they leave? But see, we all know it was miserable there. But to justify their grumbling, they must twist the truth of the past. And so there's a deafening silence about their hardships in Egypt, their oppression, the slavery... But they not only rewrite history, they're they're very selective about the data that they accept in forming their interpretation of the present. Look at verse 6. This is the present. But now our strength is dried up, 
And there is nothing at all but this manna to look at. Their strength is dried up. In other words, they're saying, we are sick and tired. Sick and tired. If you were going to summarize their complaint, they're saying, we are sick and tired. All we have is manna. Manna, manna, manna. Nothing but manna. Stale, dry, tasteless manna. Unless the the foodies among us, you know, the food connoisseurs, are tempted to sympathize with their complaints, the narrator reinserts the data points that the grumblers leave out. And the data points show that God was good enough not only to provide sustenance, but delicious delicacies. See, rice cakes, my mom used to have those, and I, she would force me to eat them, and they were like cardboard. They're terrible. But that is not what manna was. Manna was heavenly bread. It was created for pleasure as well as for calories. Look at verse 7. It says, The manna was like coriander seed, and its appearance like that of bellum. Now, bellum was a rare, precious, and beautiful substance found in the garden paradise of Eden. And in verse 8, the people went about gathering it. They, they collected it right off the ground. There was no need for planting or cultivating or weeding. In other words, there's no waiting. They didn't have to break a sweat to harvest it. No, the manna came every day with the morning dew, as it says in verse 9. And furthermore, it's a highly versatile food in verse 8. They could ground it in hand mills, beat it in mortars, boil it in pots. They could make cakes of it. In other words, there's a cookbook of a hundred different ways to cook with manna. You could make breads and cakes and pies and puddings. You name it. And in verse 8, it says, the taste of it was like the taste of cakes baked with oil. Now, the, the Holman Christian Standard Bible gets at the meaning of the Hebrew a bit more accurately by translating that verse, it tasted like a pastry cooked in the finest oil. You ever had one of those? I went down to Disney. They know how to make pastries. That is what manna was like. But to justify themselves, the grumblers conveniently left out significant data points from the past and the present when reconstructing the narrative. Not much has changed. We continue to do that today. Ian Duguid Duguid said it this way, Isn't this what grumbling always does? Grumbling distorts your vision. It reimagines the past as a golden land. It despises the good gifts that God has surrounded you with in the present. And it completely ignores God's promise for the future. That is why the root of grumbling is unbelief. See, grumbling is not only hidden, but spiritually obvious. It's, it's rooted in unbelief, not in a reasonable reading of reality. And then third, grumbling was repeated. The commentator points out that in chapter 11, there's a recording of two separate grumbling events, not one. The first breaks out on the outskirts of camp, but it's largely contained. The second spreads throughout the camp, infecting the whole camp. The first grumbling episode happened at a place called Tabra in verse 3, which means burning. The second episode at a place later named Kibriath Hatava, which means graves of craving. 
The point is that their grumbling was ongoing. A true spirit of grumbling doesn't merely happen in a moment, in a moment of weakness. It's more determined than that. And, and a true spirit of grumbling, it's different than a lament. A lament turns you toward God in hope. Grumbling turns you away from God and away from reality. And as we will see, this grumbling mood spreads throughout the whole community unless it's held in check. And that leads to our next characteristic of Israel's grumbling, right? It was contagious. It spread like the rotavirus, and it led to the same nauseating outcome. Look at verse 4. The second time it started, this grumbling, it started among the rabble, the riffraff. See, a grumbling mood started among those who you would expect, right? The immature, the ungodly, the unwise, the troublemakers. That's not surprising at all. But if you continue to the end of verse 4, you see that the people of Israel take up the grumbling and weep aloud saying, oh, that we had meat to eat. Oh, we remember the fresh fish and uh, the free fish and fresh veggies. See, it may have started with the riffraff, but it eventually contaminated the whole community. Even those who should know better begin to grumble about their situation rather than trust God. And even Moses himself gets caught up in it. Look at verse 10. Moses saw the people crowded around the, the, the doors of their tent. He heard their whining and crying. And instead of holding fast in faith and waiting upon the Lord, and interceding to God to have mercy on the people for their unfounded complaints and their wicked grumbling, as he had done in the first grumbling event in verse 2, Moses instead buckles. His spirit faints, and he complains bitterly to God. Look at it in verse 11. Moses said to the Lord, why have you dealt ill with your servant? And why have I not found favor in your sight that you lay the burden of this people on me? Did I conceive of this people? Did I give them birth that you should say to me, carry them? And on and on it goes. And in five verses of grumbling, Moses refers to himself over a dozen times. See, whereas faith would have Moses look to God, Unbelief would turn Moses to focus on himself. And that's what unbelief always does. And Moses, like every other godly leader, should have known better. But this story just testifies to the contagious nature of grumbling. It may start out on the margins of community, among the immature or among the troublemakers, but if we are not careful, it can taint the whole community and infect the leadership. That is the corrupting power of grumbling. And so we must be careful and recognize that grumbling can spread like gangrene. Leaders must take note. Who is having the greater influence? Are we standing fast by faith calling grumblers to repentance, or are the grumblers standing fast, provoking leaders to stoop to their level? So in summary, the grumbling of the Israelites was not hidden from God's eyes. It was rooted in unbelief. It was repetitive, 
and it was contagious, and the result was not pretty. Now, secondly, what is the essence of God's response to his people's grumbling? Okay, three things. His first response, he gets good and angry. Secondly, he's patient but reasonable. And third, he's uh, he's just and true. So first, he responds good and angry. He was angry, but his angry his anger was good. How so? During the first grumbling event, when a grumbling mood found a beachhead on the outskirts of camp in verse 1, God responded by consuming the outskirts of the camp where the grumbling was happening with fire. But notice, it was a controlled burn. Now, I'm not a forest ranger, but I'm told that controlled burns are a healthy thing to do. At least they do that in California and other areas. It prevents larger forest fires as well as prevents fires from threatening developments and destroying communities. That's what God's controlled burn was like. It was a very focused fire. So what does this mean? God knows the destructive power of sinful grumbling and he takes it seriously. C.S. Lewis illustrates it best when he talks about grumbling as the beginning of hell on earth. He writes this, Hell itself begins with a grumbling mood, always complaining, always blaming others, but you are still distinct from it. You may even criticize it in yourself and wish you could stop it, but but there may come a day when you can no longer. Then there will be no you left to criticize the mood or even enjoy it but just the grumble itself going on forever like a machine. It is not a question of God sending us to hell. In each of us, there is something growing which will become hell unless it is nipped in the bud. See, God knows that sinful grumbling can turn a person's life into a living hell and if, not inter- and if he does not intervene into an eternal hell, it's that destructive. And if it's not dealt with decisively and effectively, it can threaten the life of the whole. And so he- God treats this grumbling in the Israelite community as a parasitic cancer because that's what it is. And so like a great physician, God locates the cancer, he targets it and skillfully removes it with fire. Notice he only strikes where he needs to strike. He's not a careless surgeon. So how does this all apply? There's many ways, but I want to speak particularly to those in our culture that struggle with God's wrath in these ways. Listen, if you want a God worth believing in, only trust one that is good and angry. I worked on college campuses for 20 years. I can't tell you how many times I've heard this objection. I'd far rather believe in an accepting and tolerant God of love. I cannot bring myself to believe in a God of anger. But I have a question for you. How can you believe in a God of love unless you also believe in a God of anger? For tolerance is only loving if, you're, if the thing you tolerate doesn't threaten the well-being of your beloved. But what if something is so dangerous and threatening that it, it threatens the well-being, the, the, the life, even the soul of your beloved? 
If that's the case, then tolerance appears more like apathy, which to me seems like the opposite of love. Listen, any parent who truly loves his child will despise maybe the addiction that threatens the well-being of that child. It's only because a parent loves their child that he hates what drug addiction does within. A loving parent will be good and angry at the addict because he loves his child and wants what's best. A good and angry parent will allow severe consequences, even bring severe consequences into their parent's life angrily to get them to reconsider, to get them back on a path of life and health. And if that's what a good parent does, then certainly we cannot expect less from a perfect heavenly father. God's response to the sinful grumbling of his people is is to get good and angry, for he knows the devastating long-term effects when his children give themselves over to a grumbling mood. And I've been in ministry long enough to know there are some people whose lives are not ruined by wealth and by the glitzy sins, but by a mood that has forgotten to know how to count your blessings and just grumbles about everything. It can kill the soul. Secondly, God responds to sinful grumbling. His response is patient and reasonable. Notice how God patiently listens to Moses go on and on for five verses in verse 10 through 15. I mean, Moses berates God with question after question. He reflects the similar complaining spirit of the troublemakers. He, he himself has also seemingly forgotten God's provision and protection. Has he failed to remember that God did miracle after miracle through the plagues and through bringing him through the Red Sea? But what does God do with Moses? He, he not only patiently listens to Moses, he also graciously answers Moses' concerns. He generously multiplies his spiritual power in the lives of other leaders in verse 16 and 17. He takes some of the spirit he's given to Moses and he shares it with 70 others so that Moses doesn't have to carry the burden alone. And he graciously chooses leaders that are known and trusted by the people to be elders and officers over them. That's a very reasonable thing to do. So God is so patient and reasonable. What does this mean? Yes, as previously stated, we can trust God's anger because he's good, but we can trust God's anger because he is slow to anger. His anger is always patient and reasonable. His anger always brings targeted discipline and judgment. It is never out of control. His anger always provides redemptive solutions to those who are willing to embrace the solutions. So how does this apply? Are you willing to embrace the solutions God brings to the frustrating situations over which you grumble? As with Moses, it may mean being open to solutions that require you to share responsibility or give up power. As with Joshua or the young man in verse 27, it may require you to persevere through some confusing things and through anxiety. But the question remains, are you willing to embrace the solution that God brings to the frustrating situations over which you're tempted to grumble?
God's response to his people is good and angry, patient and reasonable, but lastly, it's just and true. They demand meat, and so he gives them meat. You can't get more just than that. He disciplines them not by withholding what they demand, but by giving them what they demand, by giving them exactly what they think will satisfy their cravings until they realize that they cannot actually satisfy their cravings in those things. See, given their their stubborn demands, how else will they discover the truth for themselves? See, he responds with justice and truth. And so he turns them over to their cravings until they make themselves sick. Sick. He gives them meat more than they can collect, more than they can eat. Ten homers is about 60 bushels, more than they can enjoy. Their cravings are not only out of control, they're insatiable. And like any other addiction, the people overindulge to the point of sickness. They overindulge on quail, the same way people overindulge on alcohol, and it causes them to vomit. It's talked about coming out their nose, but you can imagine why it's coming out their nose. That's what happens when you eat yourself sick or drink yourself sick. So what happened at Tabera illustrates how God sometimes restrains uh, grumbling. In essence, he quarantines the grumblers from the rest of the community. However, this proves insufficient for grumbling quickly returns yet again. And so what happened at Kibriath Hatava illustrates how God ultimately restrains grumbling. In other words, he allows the sinful grumbling to be seen for what it really is. A banquet in the grave. For that is what Kibriath Hatava means. It means graves of craving. The plague of insatiable desires. And that is the name that the place was called because there they buried the people who had the craving. But those of us who are tempted to double down on our own right to complain or or grumble take warning that this feast, this feast is a miserable feast. It's worse than the worst hangover. It's deadly. What does this all mean? Numbers 11 shows us the ultimate end of those who refuse to be content with God and his provision. The problem is that only God can satisfy your cravings. And so when you reject God and turn to anything else to satisfy your cravings, whether it's quail or sex or status or family or respect, or just the right to complain when things don't go your way, when you stop looking to God for your ultimate satisfaction, your, your cravings will become insatiable if you place them or trust them to be fulfilled in anything else. That is the predictable result. And it is a banquet in the grave. Your desires and cravings will continually increase even as your satisfaction decreases. And pretty soon you'll stuff your face until you vomit and you're sick. See, likewise, grumbling is a banquet in the grave, isn't it? We think that if we simply vent our frustrations, we'll feel better. That we'll release built up tension. But the reality is, if we grumble in this way, we we stir up tension 
because we focus on the wrong things. We forget that God sees and knows our grumbling. We rewrite history and reinterpret the present. We're only selecting that which justifies our anger and our resentment, and things go from bad to worse, and the result is nauseating. It's more anxiety, more exhaustion, more embittered more embittered souls. It's a living hell. And God's response is good and angry, patient and reasonable, just and true. But there's one more thing I have to say. His response in this passage, Numbers 11, begs for more. How do, how do I mean? Like I said, there's two grumbling events. The first, Moses intervenes and the community is spared God's burning fire. But in the second, Moses fails to intervene and the larger community is contaminated and many are buried in graves of craving. This means that Numbers 11 testifies to our need for a better mediator. See, where Moses failed, we need a mediator that will not fail. And as Hebrews declared, Jesus is that better mediator. Jesus is the better Moses. See, Moses was pushed to the limit and he cracked up. He complained, he doubted. Ultimately, Moses could not deliver the Israelites into the promised land. But Jesus was pushed to the limit and he never sinfully grumbled. He entrusted himself to the Father's will, even if it meant suffering and ridicule and betrayal and death. And as a result, God strengthened him to travel all the way through the greatest wilderness and enter the most beautiful promised land, the wilderness of the cross and the grave, and then he entered the promised land of the resurrected life. And those that trust in his death on their behalf and follow him by faith And trust in him as his mediator. He will never fail them, but will constantly stand between them and God's just wrath. They will be given access to the only banquet that satisfies. The banquet of life and thanksgiving and eternal joy. This is the good news of the gospel. And in as much as it sinks down into our heart, it gives us hope to persevere through the confusing things, through the the hard things. So, let us turn to Jesus. Let us wait upon him. Let us trust in him that God is at work. Let us pray. God, thanks so much for this word of yours. We pray that you would forgive us for the ways in which we grumble so quickly. We pray that you would recognize that grumbling is a banquet in the grave. It can make us feel good and justified in the short term, but long term it just it yields a, a deadening sickness. Father, I pray for my dear brothers and sisters as I pray for myself, for anyone here that has given themselves over to a mood of grumbling. I pray that, that tonight's message from your word would give them courage to to turn back to you, to repent, to retell the story in light of the greater reality of who you are and how you've provided for them already and how you continue to provide in the person of Christ. And that as they believe that, you would not only remove their grumbling, but you would replace it with a spirit of joy and thanksgiving. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m. To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, contact us at westpca.com. Thank you, and may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit.